very welcome to this another episode of the Fuds on Film podcast. I am Scott Morris and I am joined today by Drew Tavendale. As Sphincter says what? Here, I'm not falling for that one. We are gathered here today to talk a little bit about movies that started off their life on a much smaller screen format. And we'll probably return to this a few times, but today in particular we're going to look at some TV comedy adaptations uh, that travelled from TV all the way up to the big screen. And there's really an awful lot of films that we could choose for this one. I think it's fair to say that for the most part we've chosen to focus on the ones that we actually quite like. Yes. Some of which we might have expected to do and some of which uh, we perhaps didn't, but I think everything we're talking about today uh, we're actually quite fond of and would recommend. There's a wide number of things that we wouldn't. We will touch on some of those as we go past them. So we start off our journey with a few things that uh, came from the United States of America's Saturday Night Live, a comedy institution over there that's been going for some time actually. I did look at this, there's enough films based on Saturday Night Live material that you could do a whole podcast by themselves, although I think an awful lot of that podcast would be spent saying didn't really work on the big screen and possibly a lot of it would be saying didn't really work work on the small small screen screen. either. No, because Saturday Night Live is largely awful. Yes, but there's a couple of gems amongst the rough and uh, I think prime amongst them we'll talk about Blues Brothers one of the all-time classic comedy films the Blues Brothers Jake and Elwood Blues played by Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi travel undertake a mission from God as they see it recently released from prison Jake and Elwood discover that the orphanage where they grew up in is threatened by a tax bill and so have to get their old band back together to raise enough money to save the orphanage Uh, All of which is a really, really thin and cobbled together plot to have some ludicrous car chases, some excellent musical numbers and just a whole lot of fun all round. Narratively, it may not make a lot of sense, but it's an incredible amount of fun and I I assume even with some... (laughs) Stiff competition with the Fast and Furious to still hold the record for wrecking the most cars in a production. Yeah, a tremendously entertaining uh, film. Because they're real cars this time, Scott, not CGI Yes, cars. exactly. <laughs> one of my favourite comedy films of all time, and I'm always glad to sit there and rewatch The Blues Brothers. Yeah. If you've not seen it at all, definitely one to, to go for. I actually don't remember seeing any TV stuff for The Blues Brothers at all, apart maybe from a couple that are actually just them singing. You know, it's just the musical numbers. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there was actually a sketch behind it, but... <laughs> I assume there must have been, but at any rate, this is really funny. Excellent turns. Dan Aykroyd has probably never been better with his uh, reserve performance. I think it's even better than Ghostbusters or anything like that here. And uh, Belushi is fantastic as well. A tremendous supporting cast and some tremendous tunes uh, all the way throughout it as well. Lovely film. Loved it. Yeah, I mean, because it's got a great supporting cast, not just in terms of the acting. You've Mm -hmm. got the great John Candy, who I could have watched. John Candy's just so like was so funny and then... Carrie Fisher, um, in her just after Empire Strikes Back, this yeah. um, so in her heyday, and she's been I mean, a very non-Princess Leia-like character. But it's the the supporting cast musically that's really good. Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin. Yeah, was like <laughs> two of the greatest musicians that I've ever been. At least. And I think what's so great to me about the Blues Brothers is it's probably the best film musical there's ever been. <laughs> I, I think, in my estimation, anyway, it's just such a thoroughly entertaining film. And it's famously one of those films that was A, massively over budget when it was made and not immediately hugely popular. Yeah. It's one of those things that famously became a cult classic after the fact. Yeah. Uh, when it seemed to bomb to begin with. Because uh, it was all of those car crashes and the car chases were incredibly expensive. Yeah. Uh, and they wrecked a crazy number of police vehicles in that film. But it's just so thoroughly entertaining. 
there's no cynicism in it for all of this about these criminals, but it's just a really, really with a warm-hearted, fun film. It's really funny. And the musical numbers are so phenomenally entertaining. I mean, from like that superb scene with Ray Charles and Ray's music exchange when they sing Shake a Tail Feather and the yeah. whole street's dancing, to singing the theme from Rawhide. <laughs> right? Yeah. Why, why is that A, funny, B, really good <laughs> musically, and C, a thing at all? It's, uh, yeah. it's just so thoroughly entertaining. And some truly fantastic lines too, like when they come into that bar, and say, oh yes, we are the good old boys. And, <laughs> and I think it's Jake asks, and so what kind of music do you play here? And the woman says, oh, we have both kinds, country and western. <laughs> Every time that cracks me yeah. up. <laughs> I think what I love most about that scene is the way that the uh, the patronage of that bar show their appreciation and disdain for music in exactly the same way by throwing bottles uh, at throwing the Throwing beer yeah. bottles. <laughs> <laughs> it's... It's just a, such an entertaining film. And you know that John Belushi was coked up to the eyeballs all during, probably Dan Aykroyd as well, yeah. <laughs> but it, it doesn't stop them giving just such a superb performance. Oh, and I was going back to the supporting cast musically too. Not Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles, and James Brown. Yeah. <laughs> what? The, that's an insane cast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just, and all we've given musical performances to is. Everything about that film is entertaining. I don't think there's a scene in it I don't like. Yeah. I mean, it's not the best film ever because perhaps it could be funnier. It maybe drops a little in the final chase scene to Chicago because it goes on for such a long time. And yeah. You tend to destroy so many cars, it does get a bit boring after a while. <laughs> but for the most part, it's just such a an entertaining, light-hearted, constantly funny film. It's a hoot, is what it is. <laughs> Boosha basha, boosha basha. That's a call forward, which you should never do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I heartily recommend it. I remember, I've known this about this film for longer than I knew it was a cult classic, because I would have seen this at some point when I was still in school, um, before I really was paying attention to the, the intricacies of filmmaking. And I, I remember being surprised when you find out that this film wasn't well received at the time, because it seems so obviously brilliant that I don't understand yeah, I know, why it would fall. I don't understand you know? that, what people were thinking. Yeah, I mean, it's happened a few times. It mm. seems to be comedy is one of the more common places for it to happen. Yeah. I actually, apparently one of the very few people who did see it, I'm not, this, is, this isn't this is a TV adaptation, but it's just a, it's related to at least one actor we'll speak about later. But I think it must have been one of the few people that saw Austin Powers in the cinema. Um, mm. And it kind of bombed, but then when it got released on video, suddenly massive hit. Yeah. Um, it's strange that happens. It seems to be comedy that happens to more than any other type of film, I think. Yeah. I wonder if there's something about that where they're just... Uh, no, I, I can't even think of a, a theory as to why that should be. Yeah. I'm not sure I have a point either. <laughs> <laughs> it's just idle wanderings of my head, yeah. and this is where it's gone to. Now, this is normally the point in a film review of Blues Brothers where they warn you off watching Blues Brothers 2000. Um, you know what? I'm going to mount one of the, the most half-hearted defences of a film you'll ever hear. Blues Brothers 2000 isn't dreadful. You expect <laughs> it would be dreadful from everything you've heard about it and everything you read about it on the back cover of the uh, the DVD edition, which you've got because that was the only way to buy the Blues Brothers for a long time, bundled with Blues Brothers 2000, uh, which is a unique way of trying to get that into someone's hands. But eventually, at some point, I did break and watch it, and it's it's not good, and it doesn't need to exist, but as a sort of Blues Brothers tribute act, it's sort of acceptable on that level. See- that's the issue I have. I've never seen it. I've never felt the need to. And 
I like John Goodman a great deal. Mm, yeah, yeah. John Goodman is possibly the best thing in my favourite film of all time. Well, maybe up there with Lawrence of Arabia. But yeah, I was going to say, I can't remember him in Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I think that's technically Lawrence of Arabia is my favourite film of all time, but yeah. the one I've watched more than any other, yeah. and the one I like most is probably is The Big Lebowski. But yeah, while I like John Goodman an awful, awful lot, he's not John Belushi. No. Uh, and the big problem with Blues Brothers 2000 is John Belushi's not in it. And if it's a Blues Brothers film without John Belushi, why does A exist and B, why would you watch it? That's what it comes down to for me. Yeah, if, if you ever stumble across it, it's it's not as bad as you might expect. But that's not exactly the most wild recommendation when you're going <laughs> on immediately to talk about a film that is way mire. If you've not seen it, I, I would certainly give Blues Brothers 2000 a pass in favour of anything else that we'll be talking about from here on in. Um, but I suppose that's a, as, as good as any as a lead into another Saturday Night Live property, uh, Wayne's World. Drew? Yes. So, this is based on a recurring Saturday Night Live sketch, which was itself based on a segment of a CBC series um, <laughs> called It's Only Rock and Roll. Wayne's World is the story of Wayne Campbell, Mike Myers, and Garth Algar, Dana Carvey, two lifelong friends who broadcast a public access television show from the basement of Wayne's parents' house in a Chicago suburb. Everything changes for them when TV executive Benjamin Oliver, Rob Lowe, buys their show as a sponsorship vehicle for local arcade owner Noah Vanderhoff, Brian Doyle Murray, and while Wayne and Garth may now have more money than they've ever had, we've got $5,000, we've got $5,000, they soon discover that they now no longer have creative control. Their friendship is put under strain, as is Wayne's burgeoning relationship with rock singer Cassandra, Tia Carrera, who Wayne considers is getting altogether too friendly with Benjamin. <laughs> so in short, Wayne must win back the girl, rescue his TV programme, put one over in Benjamin, make up with Garth, and get Cassandra a record deal. No biggie. <laughs> and avoid the Scooby-Doo ending. <laughs> it's not the strongest film you'll ever see plot-wise. It could be read as an attack on TV producers removing the soul of something in the interest of commerciality, but for me it's just a frame on which to hang a bunch of gags, and it doesn't need, or indeed merit, any more thought than that. But it was, and is, funny. As well as being surprisingly influential, more than a few things from Wayne's World have entered the pop culture lexicon. It also spawned a sequel, which added a music festival, Danny from With Nail and I, and Christopher Walken, and jettisoned Penelope Spheres as director because, to read between the lines, Mike Myers was a bit of an asshat. <laughs> But which otherwise wasn't much different except for being not quite so funny. I always liked Wayne's World. It's remarkably silly. Mm -hmm. But it is funny. Um, and there's a warmth to it as well. And as I said, so much of it has entered into the pop culture lexicon, like the way and no way, that sort of thing. And then <laughs> that Scooby-Doo yeah. ending <laughs> thing. I mean, we bring that up in conversation like, semi-regularly, yeah. I think. <laughs> I wonder how much of that is just... The timing of it, because it did hit us at one of our more impressionable ages, where we'd be more likely to kind of parrot that stuff. And I wonder if maybe a younger generation, yeah, might just not beginning high school, quite so much out of it. Um, but I enjoy Wayne's World an awful lot. Uh, I still do. I don't know how much of that's still nostalgia, but I still find most of the gags funny. There's there's that one about Grey Poupon that I've never quite understood um, to this <laughs> yeah, day. Yeah, <laughs> it took me about 15 years after watching that to find out that it's based on. A US commercial for mustard so that was completely <laughs> lost in us because I'd A, never heard of it yeah. and certainly never seen the, the commercial but um, even then just 
Because it seems so absurd, it still seemed funny. Yeah, between that and it, and it being one of the first uh, movies I've seen that really drew attention to the <laughs> the ludicrousness of product placement in uh, films, which is still a problem to this day. That montage is fantastic, isn't yeah. it? When the like the Nurofen and Pepsi <laughs> and Pizza Hut and everything. Else. And yeah, I, I still think modern audiences would get a lot from it if you've not seen it already. Um, I think it's probably still. Uh, I can recommend it without hesitation. Uh, you know, I, I would have no qualms about recommending, say, the Blues Brothers to anyone from today's uh, today's youth, <laughs> uh, because I think it's it's kind of universal. Wayne's yeah. World maybe is a bit more of its time, but I still think it's uh, the times haven't changed that much to stop it being you know really funny uh, and all the jokes yeah. are still landing. So yeah, I honestly don't think there's that much in Wayne's World that's particularly like, rooted to its time. Mm. I mean, it's any film with technology immediately dates itself. Yeah. This is considerably less about that. Well, not really at all. And there's not any like problems in it that might be solved, particularly by having a mobile phone or anything like that. And it's just about yeah. culture and friendship and things. And, and the music that's popular yeah. in that film, still kind of popular today, you know, in that. Bohemian Rhapsody was already, what, 20 years old by the yeah. time that film was made um, yeah actually well, no, 20 years it's still funny i take it back yeah uh, i think everyone get it uh, particularly because a lot of the lines are still being used today uh, you know things like oh it's not just a clever name that sort of thing um mm-hmm. there, there's so many things like you say that, that are still actually doing the rounds now that yeah if you've somehow not seen it it's definitely worth watching this one just to see where most of them came from at least as far as i know um, yes and it's very very funny um probably mike myers is Mm, is it better than Gold? It's probably better than Gold. Uh, Austin Powers stuff. Just um, he's got. To, he's been lucky to have like about three really good films, uh, and this is this is certainly one of them. So yes, uh, definitely yeah. recommended. I don't. I think I prefer Austin Powers, but oh yeah, I know. I know. I prefer Austin Powers. I think Austin Powers is better. Right. Um, let, let's set Gold Member aside because that's terrible. <laughs> but yes, Mike Myers is really entertaining in this. There's no, like, malice or, well, I mean, maybe a wee bit of the product placement. There's not much cynicism or anything either. It's mostly it's just kind of good-hearted fun. Yeah. And that helps a lot, I think. Yeah, it's fun. And the sequel, sequel's definitely not as good. Because it, it's, it's doing a lot of the same stuff again. Yeah. Which is a pity, cause it, even if it just almost immediately went to just repeating things. But it's funny, and you have Garth with the, the women and you know, Kim Basinger and Heather Locklear and things and uh, give, give Garth a bit more to do and that's quite funny yeah and Danny um, Ralph Brown Danny from Withnail and I mm-hmm. Dell I think he is in Wayne's World too going on and on about the M&M's yeah. uh, as the stoner roadie that's just really really funny <laughs> and again also timeless stoners are timeless right yeah. so I would definitely recommend the sequel as well just with bear in mind it's not as good as the first but it's still both entertaining funny films yeah the more I think about Wayne's World, the more the more you remember these little moments that are largely non-secondaries, just silly little gags, but are absolutely brilliant. Like uh, opening grooms to a door full of ninjas and, and <laughs> random throwaways, the you know, Ed's diner, uh, where he starts talking to the camera as well. And there's so many lovely little moments. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just a great comedy. Yeah, yeah, and they're just like, they're set pieces that are sort of stick in your head, like the um, We Are Not Worthy thing with yeah. Alice Cooper, which was called back to in the, the second film where Aerosmith actually go you're worthy you're worthy get up whereas Alice Cooper was accepting adulation yeah. uh, and I mean I think that really certainly for our generation that kind of stuck in the consciousness we are not worthy along yeah. with the way and no way thing and then there's the Garth moving to 
Jimi Hendrix's Foxy Lady. Yeah. <laughs> I just, it's just full of great little moments. Yeah. Uh, again, so maybe plot-wise not the strongest, but as it just strings all of these little vignettes together, yeah. it's such an entertaining film. Yes, definitely. Yeah, the, I was going to say, the Bohemian Rhapsody scene with them headbanging in the car, that never gets old for me. It's, it is good. Okay, so uh, moving on a few years, 2002 brought us I Spy, a comedy film with Eddie Murphy and Owen Wilson, a remake of a TV series with uh, someone who we're not allowed to say is funny anymore, Robert Culp and uh, Bill Cosby. So I can't really say I had any baggage going into this when I saw it in release in 2002 because I'd never seen nor, I believe, heard of I Spy <laughs> at the time. So it's not just me then because I basically, I was like, I Spy is a famous... Spy television program from the sixties. It's not here at the. It wasn't. is. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll I, take your word on that. Again, please see also Get Smart, which falls in exactly the same basket, and apparently was the same program yes. as far as I can tell. <laughs> yeah. So in this, we have Owen Wilson as a spy for the National Security Agency, I believe that was, and he is seems to be something of an everyman in comparison to his colleagues who are perhaps tending a bit towards the ultra-suave James Bond end of things, and he's just a, a bumbling schmuck who's trying to make his way in the world. He's tasked with recovering a experimental plane called the Switchblade, a stealth fighter that has uh, been... Leafy Bug, Scott. Leafy Bug. <laughs> Use the better name. Which has been stolen by... Malcolm McDowell, probably Malcolm McDowell's character, but I wouldn't put it past Malcolm McDowell himself either. He's stolen it uh, with the intention of selling it off to the highest bidder and those being a bunch of nasty terrorists. So the only way to get it back is, contrivedly enough, by having Owen Wilson become a part of Eddie Murphy, who is playing Kelly Robinson, a famous, highly talented boxer who's incredibly full of himself, by joining part of his retinue, heading off to Budapest, and getting the plane back aided and abetted by Famke Janssen's character, who may or may not have loyalties to another side. It's got a plot that is entirely sufficient to drive things along, and <laughs> I was wildly surprised when we revisited it just the other week to find out that it's actually still pretty funny. I remember thinking it was quite funny in 2002, and then I not really thought about it much in the interim, apparently enough to buy it on DVD, but not enough yeah, to actually exactly watch it same, again. I'm not convinced I ever watched it on DVD, is <laughs> Yes. Uh, in the 15 years in between. Yes, but watching it again the other night, it turns out that it still holds up quite well. It's quite funny, or I probably enjoyed it as much on the second time round as far as I can remember from the first time round. It has a number of pretty good moments. Largely, I'm sure most of it was just Eddie Murphy and Owen Wilson improvising, where most of the laughs came from. And arguably, when they actually start having to get down with the actual plot of things, is where it's actually less funny. And most of the the moments you want to watch I Spy from were just the banter and interplay between these two characters. The plot's fine. The sporting cast are fine. Some strange casting choices, particularly in Carlos, the super spy from... <laughs> who. Seems to be playing a Mexican, but he's actually from Indiana. Why is Gary Cole doing this role? I, I, I'm confused on a number of levels, but I'm sure that was the intent. Um, I mean, I'm generally glad to see Gary Cole in anything because yeah. Gary Cole's fantastic, but that was the strangest casting, especially because, uh, as I mentioned to you, Scott, when we were watching it, I was pretty certain that that was Antonio Banderas. Yes. <laughs> in my memory, that had been filed away as Antonio Banderas is an ice spy. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> no, it's Gary Cole from Indiana. What? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's probably intentional, but it's still weird. <laughs> but, yes. but it's funny, so I guess it worked. And uh, yes, it's perhaps been one of the more obscure 
uh, recommendations on the list. I don't really remember anyone talking about I Spy as though it was any kind of, you know, giving this any sort of retrospective props whatsoever. Um, I think it's one of these things that's kind of faded off the radar, but I was very surprised to go back to it. And yes, it's quite enjoyable. Uh, perhaps, if anything, uh, Get Smart is remembered a bit more fondly just because of the influence that Steve Carell had later in his career. He became a, a comedy behemoth uh, around about this time and just after it, so maybe that is more well remembered. But I Spy is certainly really funny, and yeah, give it a go. Yeah, yes. Yeah, the real surprise was that that does in fact hold up. It's you know, it's not going to blow you away by any mm-hmm. means, but it is still entertaining, and it's nice to every now and then be reminded that Eddie Murphy can be funny. Yeah, because you know, for for a long time he's. He was not the, the being world. so much funny as a complete irritant. Yeah, he was in the wilderness uh, of family-friendly movies for a long time, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and actually, to be fair to him, Daddy Daycare is actually a passably entertaining film. Yeah, but true. it's all the, the Nutty Professor stuff. Um, and just, oh, that was a terrible numbskulls-like film. Dave? Yeah. A truly, truly terrible film. Or Meet um, Dave or something like that, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, um, possibly. But yes, the... The fact that Eddie Murphy's actually entertaining and, you know, there's good chemistry between him and Owen Wilson in this, it makes it really funny. It's, yeah, it's entertaining. What I would like to mention, we're not going to cover it too much, but just because it, it bears so many similarities, is, um, we've mentioned it twice now, but Get Smart, we're not going to cover it in its own wee section, but it's remarkable that there are two almost identical films, <laughs> it seems. Um, I mean, Get Smart, having just watched it at the beginning of the week again, is every bit as funny still as I Spy is. What's weird about Get Smart is that it is basically the entire plot for Melissa McCarthy's Spy, but nobody seems to have noticed. <laughs> I don't remember any talk about it around the time of uh, Spy a couple of years ago now. Yeah. And it's weird because it's it's nearly identical. <laughs> I mean, it bears some other similarities to I Spy, and it's got instead of having Malcolm McDowell it's got Terrence Stamp but they almost seem like interchangeable people to me <laughs> but it's uh it's also worth watching if you like this thing but you you're going to find a, a horrible sense of deja vu when you watch it like I've definitely seen this plot at least three times before <laughs> but because uh Steve Carell's just, just endlessly watched what's well, worth a look as well if you if you find that you like one of these films like I Spy then you're going to like Get Smart as well and if you like Spy you'll like Get Smart because it's the same film but with Steve Cavell instead of Melissa McCarthy. Yeah, that, that, Unfortunately, without Jason Statham. Yeah, that, that might actually be the only weakness to these two films, is that Spy, not based on a TV series, but it is probably funnier than either of those these two films. Yes, uh, and as Jason Statham, yeah. who, who is just phenomenal in that film. Yeah, absolutely incredible. Uh, I can't recommend Spy. And Peter Serafin of it, but yeah. mostly Jason Statham. So then, we move from the 1960s into the 1970s. 1970s Bay City, to be precise. Straight-laced but terrier-like detective David Starsky, Ben Stiller, is reluctantly partnered with the laid-back, nearly criminal Ken Hutchison, Owen Wilson, as punishment for his overzealous pursuit of minor offences. After getting off to a rocky start, the two develop an understanding that will be vital as they investigate Vince Vaughn's Reese Feldman, a drug dealer who has developed a new type of cocaine, undetectable by the police and indistinguishable from artificial sweeteners. Hijinks will surely ensue. They are aided on all this by the streetwise uber cool huggy bear, Snoop Dogg. And the problem with these TV adaptations is the structure tends to get very, very similar. <laughs> Starsky and Hutch is one that I was slightly more familiar with than the other ones in that I'd heard of Starsky and Hutch, I'd never heard of I Spy. <laughs> and I think I've probably seen bits and pieces of it, but I always thought 
and correct me if I'm wrong, please, Scott, because uh, I really don't know, but I always thought Starsky and Hutch was fairly... Serious. Serious, yeah, yeah. police procedural. Uh, whereas the Ben Stiller version is a, a directed by Todd Phillips is a almost a spoof of it. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah it's, a reverential self parody. Yeah, it's definitely been played for laughs in this outing. And um, you know, Todd Phillips, of course, went on to do the, the Hangover films and all these kind of things. So you know where his his intent lies. Um, Starsky and Hutch, I've, I've not really seen a lot of. Um, as I understand it, the first first series, maybe two series, were largely standard enough police procedurals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then for the next couple of series, I think it was only four series off the top of my head, and then it, it it did get a bit more focused towards the kind of buddy cop relationship thing, which is uh-huh. probably where this is taking it taking it and running with it from. But certainly it wasn't wasn't anything like as daft as Starsky and Hutch. <laughs> um, it was it wasn't something that you would automatically think would confirm to that sort of Ben Stiller comedy <laughs> rash that was going on around the uh, early two thousands, but. It works for the most part. Um, I have yeah, it does. It does. Um, I think actually this is one of the few films that I've seen and probably enjoyed a bit more second time round. I remember thinking this was decent enough at the cinema and uh, you know a pretty solid comedy outing, but uh, I probably enjoyed it more when I watched it just the other day. There, maybe that's because I've got a slightly better opinion of Vince Vaughn now than it did. I kind of get his shtick a bit more than than I did at the time. I think maybe perhaps part of it. Is a somewhat lackadaisical, <laughs> laid-back uh, approach to acting. I think actually works quite well from this. And yeah, it, it, again, it's just one of these kind of films where it's largely based around the chemistry between Owen Wilson and Ben Stiller, and that pulls off quite a lot. Um, it manages to cover quite a lot of sins, as you say. Like all of these things, the plot is really there to just hang gags around, but those gags, for the most part, land pretty well, mm-hmm. um, including. Including setting up that whole artificial sweetener thing, and then Ben Stiller putting it in the coffee, and then the inevitable dance off with uh, Harmar Superstar. <laughs> the inevitable dance off. <laughs> it had to it feels like a bit of a throwback to the model off in Zoolander, yeah. but it's still welcome and funny. I, mean, I think I was already on board with Vince Von Stick, and it was because he'd already done that uh, with Todd Phillips just a year before, I think, in Old School, where. It, Todd Phillips had also yeah. worked with yeah. Will Ferrell, who oh, yeah. is also in Starsky and Hutch as Big Earl. <laughs> and again, as Will <laughs> Ferrell has been wanting to do over a number of years, <laughs> manages to absolutely steal steal the show, even in a relatively small role. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, I mean, Ben Stiller can be really tiresome, and he has been um, in for, for a good long period, he was just in some terrible, terrible stuff. Um, yeah. And meet the parents and all of the interminable sequels. Yeah, I assume that because I just watched the first one. It's one of the worst things I've ever seen. So I assume the sequels are every bit as bad. The <laughs> trailers also always suggested. But Ben Stiller had a hell of a run for maybe four or five years, where everything he was in was at least funny, and in the best case, he's really, really funny. Yeah, uh, so he had that run. So the Starskin Hutch and Zoolander and Dodgeball. And there probably a couple of things I forget. And it's like mm-hmm. this really good run of and while he was always kind of Ben Stiller in them. Yeah. Uh, Tropic Thunder, I guess. Tropic Thunder twenty or four is a bit later, maybe a couple of years after that. It's it's that time frame anyway. It was that's probably yeah. the end of it. Given yeah, the I think the, yeah, it's of the of end bombed. of his run. Yeah, but um, yeah. It, it might have bombed. But this is another one that was actually I think really good. <laughs> I really do like Tropic yeah. Thunder. Yeah. So, <laughs> although it's Robert Downey Jr.'s the real comedy revelation yeah. in that film, yeah. but still, yeah. So Ben Stiller had this really good run. Owen Wilson 
kind of coincide with that. So we're working with Ben Still in a couple of films there too. It's at least three films they work together in, I think, because you've got the Royal Tenenbaums as well. Yeah. But yes, it's a really good period for those two actors, I think. And Owen Wilson's off on his own doing things like Shanghai Noon as well yeah. at the same time. It just seemed to be a golden period for those two actors. And Starsky and Hutch stands up pretty well in the same way that I Spy does. Yeah. That I, because I enjoyed it a lot the first time around, I don't think I found it any funnier the second time like you did, because I'm pretty confident I've not watched this since it was in the cinema. Yeah. Again, having obviously <laughs> bought the DVD to sit on my shelf and be untouched, but it is still remarkably funny. And again, maybe because it's set in the 70s, it's, it was already like calling back to the early times, so it hasn't aged any in the 15 mm. odd years, almost 15 years in between. And it's just, I don't know, when people, when there's genuine chemistry between the leads, mm-hmm. as there is here. I mean, I mean it's not like Oscar winning chemistry or anything like that, but there's a, there's like a, they're playing off of each other and they're clearly comfortable with each other. You don't get that horrible edge of people that don't like each other because that can seem to be transmitted to the screen. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's quite warm and it's funny and it's laid back and so you just get settled into it and it's funny. And Okay, Snoop Dogg's no great actor. But even he comes out of this pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> he does He does have a, a good bit of comic timing there. Just, I think in terms of the way he can fairly dryly deliver some lines. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's good. <laughs> we'll be saying that looks... We, we have kind of limited ourselves with the, the massive number of potential films we could have covered here. Limited stuff, limited stuff, stuff we actually liked. Yeah. Uh, the, almost accidentally in the case mm-hmm. of um, this and a couple of others. But it's it's good. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that we uh, were contemplating but then discarded because we'd either just be thinking that it's either mediocre or actually bad, and we'd rather just yes. talk about films we like for a change, just to make sure we're on board with that. I think this is as good a time as any to crash onwards. Uh, we're actually jumping back in time a little bit to the Naked Gun series, which of course was based on Police Squad. Now, if there is ever evidence for humanity not knowing what it was doing, it was the cancellation <laughs> of Police Squad, which maybe six episodes six episodes and being british we're sort of used to that being a full series but <laughs> uh, in america i cannot understand how this happened because police squad is one of my favorite things in the world jim abrams uh, and the zucker brothers um, i am entirely in tune with their line of comedy i don't think there's <laughs> yes. any people who i who get me more <laughs> than this sort of thing i think i'm kind of on board with you there scott basically I, I think there's probably not enough people in the world who would basically pissed themselves with laughter at the line it turned out to be one of those all-night wicker places but that just slays me as i'm sure we've said a a few times that the most thankless most demanding job must be the prop buyer on one of these zucker (laughs) brothers productions because we need we need to buy a wicker tv and a wicker sofa set and (laughs) just so we can have someone walk past carrying them in the background of one shot and the, the, they have so much little attention to detail, little background gags, little things you you might you won't pick up on first time round. You've got to watch it a few times. Uh, just the, the ludicrous, ridiculous nature of most of their lines and delivery is just something that uh, it brings me no end of joy. I could watch all all the Police Squad and uh, the Naked Gun stuff that that came after it endlessly, and of course other movies like Airplane and all you know, even 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 the ones that are not quite so well regarded. I still love. Um, so yes, uh, you'll hear nothing bad about me from the Naked Gun series. Now, there are, of course, three films. I don't think there's any value in actually telling you what happens in any of them, but they're all based around the character of Leslie Nielsen's Frank Drebin. But Sergeant Frank Drebin, yes. Detective Lieutenant Police Squad. 
who is one of the least competent cops you'll ever see, but somehow still gets results despite all of this. And yes, as I say, there, there is no value in going over what happens in all of these. I think the only thing that really sort of sticks out in this modern age is O.J. Simpson's casting, which uh, at the time yeah. was was really good, although in retrospect, you do have to cast a, a sideward glance at that, but you can't really hold it, hold it responsible for that. <laughs> although it, maybe it's... Uh comment on the esteem with which i hold in which i hold these films mm. or just the fact they're still just genuinely funny but it's oj simpson right mm. but i particularly in the first film because nordberg's got the biggest role there <laughs> yeah it's character nordberg you feel sorry for oj simpson because of all the terrible things that happened to nordberg and it's like, <laughs> that was unexpected yeah <laughs> to be honest, I, I don't even want to spend too much time talking about it, but I can only say is, if your sense of humour at any point verges towards the most ridic- the kind of more surreal, juvenile, ridiculous nature of things, there is no end of joy in watching any of these Zucker Brothers films, and Police Squad's probably the peak, but The Naked Gun, certainly the first two, you could argue the third one is uh, a cut below the other two, but Naked Gun uh, 1 and 2.5, and The Smell of Fear... Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's thirty-three and a third is the final insult. <laughs> but certainly, those those first two films are some of the greatest laughs I've had uh, watching a film. You, you could argue stuff like uh, Airplane, of course, is a another prime example. But really, Leslie Nielsen is just such a comedy daddy. <laughs> the, the, the the dry deadpan delivery that he has is oh, uh, funny in the context of this absolute bananas scenarios that he's been put into just really makes for some of the, the, the funniest contrasts you'll see in in cinema great stuff really enjoy all yeah. of this having watched all three again just to speak i was slightly disappointed by the third one hmm. which i kind of think i'd managed to avoid seeing just not by really? um, attention but I, hmm. I don't remember i don't remember enough of it to make me think that i've seen it before because my yeah. name is generally pretty good hmm. i've seen it a few um, times now and it's it's not as good, but, you know, it's still yeah. good. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's still funny, but it's definitely not as funny sure, as, sure. as the other two. And I think, actually, two and a half is the pinnacle. Right. I, I was creasing myself watching <laughs> Naked Gun 2. I think that's <laughs> as good as the first one is. I think the second one's where it's absolutely everything works. Yeah. But even, I was in, almost in tears just watching Leslie Nielsen trying to eat a lobster. <laughs> And then he's got the fork in the lobster and he's moving the fork backwards and forwards and the, the claw the claw of the lobster's clapping up and down. And I'm, see, just like you are just, yeah. just thinking about it. It's um, Yes, they're absolutely absurd. And I, I get that that's definitely not the sort of humour that's going to appeal to everybody. Mm-hmm. But oh, it's so funny because it's just so daft and the crazy non-secretaries and all the weird stuff they're saying. And, yeah. and you really do. For a lot of comedy, you don't always have to pay attention for the naked gun actually you do you do need a bit of concentration because so much of it, much of his wordplay yeah and if you're not really giving the attention it deserves you're going to miss a lot of the jokes mm. but oh it's just they are so funny and we mentioned how weird it was to see leslie nielsen in a straight role when we did our disaster movie episode mm-hmm. because he's the captain of the poseidon of the yeah. poseidon adventure yeah. After, by airplane, that's where he really found his calling. Um, yeah. And he was in a bunch of other films of to a greater or lesser degree of comedy and things like um, Spy Hard and... Um, Dracula, re- dead and loving it. <laughs> repossessed and things. <laughs> but it's the airplane films, and particularly the Naked Gun films, where he was he's a pinnacle. Yeah. I mean, it's got a really expressive face, which always helps in that sort of comedy. But it is, it's his delivery. 
And the man's a comedy genius as far as I'm concerned. And if you've not seen the Naked Gun films, you really need to do yourself a favour and watch the Naked Gun films because they're amazing. Yeah, I don't know what it says about me that I'm sure that most people who are really into films wish if they had any interest at all about maybe producing something at some point. They think, oh, I really wish I'd, I'd made... I don't know, Schindler's List. I really wish I'd made Citizen, Citizen Kane. Kane. I really wish I'd made probably Police Squad. I think that's that <laughs> might be the the pinnacle of human evolution, in my opinion. It's, <laughs> it's one of the funniest things. But yeah, the, the whole Zucker Brothers things. I constantly, I, I always get little flashes now and again of things like um, Drebin and someone else having a shootout. They run out of bullets, so, so he throws his gun the other person runs the bullets, he throws their gun, then, some, then magically another gun appears and they're just throwing guns at each other for a few minutes. Uh, wonderful stuff. I love that. That's, that. For what all the negative things that probably says about me is really my level, and that's where I'm happy at, <laughs> goddammit. <laughs> of all the films we're going to talk about tonight, I'm not sure I could pick a best one, hmm. but uh, maybe Naked Gun 2 would be up there. Uh, sure. That in the blues. Oh, no, not got the life of Brent 2. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, because we have talked about films we really like, yeah. but the Naked Gun series is just such outright joy. Yeah. <laughs> um, it really is funny. Yeah, that, I mean, it's ludicrous. It's, I say it's really not everybody's type of humour, and that's okay. I mean, some humour, I think, is some funny things. It's more just, it's cultural or maybe taste. I think with the Naked Gun, it's definitely a, a type of humour thing. Yeah. Because it's, it's not quite absurdist when we say something like Monty Python is, but it's not slapstick either, although there's a bit of that in there. Mm-hmm. It's kind of hard to really categorise Naked Gun, but if it if you watch it and if you're not laughing within five minutes, then you're probably not going at all. But yeah. um, if you're anything like me and Scott, by the sound of it, <laughs> oh, yeah. within five minutes you'll probably be laughing like a drain. <laughs> yes, strange expression. Not known too many drains that laugh, come to think of it, but... Anyway, uh, in the interest of time, we should probably move on. Let's move a little bit north of the border. Those kids in the hall and their uh, movie outing, Brain Candy. Drew, would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Yet another film based on a TV comedy sketch show, and once again from producer Lorne Michaels, but this time from his other, less famous sketch show. You know, the good one. (laughs) The one that was actually funny. I'm talking, of course, about the kids in the hall. A troop of five Canadians... Kevin MacDonald, Scott Thompson, Dave Foley, Bruce McCulloch and Kevin McKinney, whose sketch show ran for five seasons from 1989 to 1995. In 1996, they made the transition to the big screen with Kids in the Hall of Brain Candy, the story of a new wonder drug called Gleaminex, which has the power to cure depression by unlocking a person's happiest memory. Sadly, this also has the effect of locking a person into that memory, turning its users into statues, albeit terminally happy statues. The Kids in the Hall were... All was very much a successor to Monty Python and their first, and so far only, but we can always hope, foray into cinema was also very Python-esque. The absurd and surreal nature of much of it, and with all major characters, male and female, played by the five men. As with most things based on sketch shows, there is an element of the film being a series of sketches more or less loosely linked to the central conceit, and as such, it suffers greatly from the hit-or-miss nature of sketch shows. However, and while not being as successful as the best Python films, it has more hits than misses, a ratio which also set the TV series apart from most of its peers, and it's really a rather entertaining film with some memorable songs to boot. It also, fortunately, doesn't rely on knowledge of recurring characters from the series either, so it's entirely possible to come to this with no prior experience. Yeah, Brain Candy is perhaps an odd one. Uh, I really, really like Kids in the Hall. Um, they have a 
a really good comedy show and I really enjoy it. Brain Candy, I, I do also enjoy. I think it's very funny. Um, it's hard to say if it's a good entry point for someone that's not had any experience to them. It's almost like you would need to compile a list of some of the best sketches first and then you could go and watch Brain Candy. Uh, they're not related in any way, but I think it would help just kind of get their brand of humour because, I mean, you talked about it a little bit with uh, The Naked Gun. I think, if anything else, this is even more selective to its taste, I think. <laughs> it is Maybe, again, it's just a, a slight cultural difference, but Kids in the Hall is strange in a very peculiar way that maybe Monty Python isn't. I think Monty Python, although it's obviously incredibly surreal, it does also seem kind of broadly applicable to... British audiences at least, where I think Kids in the Hall is maybe a bit more sort of narrowly focused. That said, I think Brain Candy is really good, has some some fantastic, as you say, musical numbers. Some of my favourite songs actually come from this soundtrack. Yeah, I <laughs> genuinely love um, Happiness Pie. Yeah. <laughs> it's a ludicrous song. <laughs> and the other one that Bruce McCulloch sings to at the beginning of the darkness one. <laughs> some days it is dark. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and Lost of Nights Little Set Pieces probably actually has one of the stronger narratives in terms of <laughs> what the films are. Well, that's our film, today. yes, I yeah. think so, yeah. Um, and some why I mentioned Monty Python as well, because there are so many similarities, not just across dressing, but because they do better than anybody since them, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I mean, it's got sort of same strong central narrative, something like Life of Brian has, yeah, that a lot of other maybe vaguely similar films just don't have they've got one hook that they can hang something on yeah whereas at least this does follow even though it's it does kind of go from sketch to sketch but it has this strong backbone throughout it yeah it's probably the the one film in this list that i have to be a bit more guarded about recommending i mean if you have the same sense of humor as i do then you will love this as much (laughs) as all the rest of the ones we're talking about today and it's still greatly amuses me every time you see it but yeah their brand of humor is a little bit more of an acquired taste and it would be hard, I think, to acquire that over the course of this film without having seen some of their best sketches before. But thankfully, YouTube is a thing, and you can yes. do that very easily. And all of their best sketches, I believe, are on there at this point, yes, uh, with direct with uh, their commentary on the start and end of it as well, by the looks of it, for most of them. So, yeah, uh, definitely worth taking a splunking through these Kids in the Hall archives if you haven't done. Yes. And after you've done that, I think it's well worth giving Brain Candy a look. It's tremendously funny, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I'm a big, big fan of Brain Candy. It's really funny. I say the music is just, it sticks in my head. It's ridiculous things. And even there are strange little things that have always stuck in my head that, I mean, out of context will mean nothing. But just um, if you, once you watch this, you'll get it. It's like Mark McKinney talking to Scott Thompson, the repressed gay character that um, re- recurs to it. I'm just saying, big muscles, art muscles. And it that just cracks me up. It's, it's <laughs> and for just those two lines have stuck in my head ever since all this the first time in the mid 90s i think it probably behooves us to at least because we've given the caveat about the, the type of humor of kids in the hall to mention a couple of specific sketches that you should look up so if you're interested in kids in the hall at all and you're not familiar with them go into youtube and the very first thing that you must look up is kids in the hall citizen kane <laughs> if you don't find that funny just don't bother contacting us again. <laughs> but, um, not that I have strong feelings on this at all. I mean, yes, Kids Know Citizen Kane. Um, it, it's really funny. It's possibly their most famous sketch. It's certainly one of their best. Yeah. And that should give you a, a good in. And hopefully you find that funny. Maybe Pit of Ultimate Darkness, Kids in the Hall Bad Doctor. Hmm. And I don't know what else is maybe worth mentioning there. That's a good handful to begin with. Yeah. Bad Doctor, 
Citizen Kane, maybe a whole lot of milk, because uh, that's one of the slightly more absurd ones. Yeah, uh, uh, the, the one that probably sticks out for me, and I'm not sure how we would find it on YouTube exactly, but like Canadian trappers or office mm. trappers or something. Like yeah, that. I think that's it's just. Um, I think it's just, just look, if you look for kids in the hall, the trappers. I yeah. think you'll find that. Um, yes, that's that's an, an obvious one. I forgot as well, Scott. If you like, I mean, that's a handful, and maybe four or five minutes each. So not big sketches. And maybe also Face Pincher versus Head Crusher. <laughs> yes. um, as weird as that sounds, you'll understand it when you watch it. Watch those. Give yourself maybe 15, 20 minutes to watch a handful of those. And if you are tickled by them, then I think you'll like Brain Candy. Yeah, absolutely. Okay then, so we have mentioned what we're going to next. And we're coming to these shores now. In fact, one of these films was filmed not 20 miles from where it's sitting at this moment. We're going to talk about Monty Python, Scott. Yes, Monty Python. Famed British comedy troupe that I don't think needs a hell of a lot of introduction from me. Graham Chapman, Eric Idle, Telly Gilliam, Terry Jones, John Cleese, Michael Palin. All these names are still pretty much household names uh, as much now as they were back in the 70s until now. So long careers for all these guys. Very successful. Monty Python's Flying Circus was something that was always kicking around when I was a kid and I, I enjoyed an awful lot. I do remember in higher English class I was trying to explain why Monty Python was funny and that's something I struggled with at the time and I'm not sure I'll do any better than now but uh, in terms of surreal comedy there really hasn't been anyone who's done it as well as these guys. Their show ran for about five years in the UK and there's been four films based on it, two of which are essentially sketch shows, uh, their first and last efforts, now for something completely different, and the meaning of life are essentially, well certainly the first one is just remade sets, sketches, which was an attempt to kind of break into the American market, and the last one is essentially a sketch uh, compilation as I well. I think, I thought you could argue that meaning of life is anything other than a sketch show with yeah. um, film quality um, yeah. production. And um, they have their qualities and they are very funny, but what we're probably most concerned with is they're, they're really their crowding glories. And you could argue for hours as to which one is better with The Life of Brian and their search for the Holy Grail. Well, you'd be wrong, obviously, unless you said it was um, Life of Brian, because it's clearly the best. I, I really prefer <laughs> a Holy Grail. Um, but the, I know you do. That's <laughs> why so I'm telling you you're wrong. It is, it is the narcissism of smallest differences, really. Uh, both mm. films are incredible and largely described by the, uh, their title. I don't know how much more explanation is needed. Holy Grail, of course, sees them as uh, Arthurian knights uh, searching the Holy Grail in a loose pretense as they actually trollop around the countryside meeting incredibly strange characters and <laughs> having strange things happen to them and also has one of the most abrupt and <laughs> strange endings in cinematic history. Uh, the Life of Brian is a loose parody of uh, <laughs> well, Christ's life, actually, is uh, someone who is mistaken for him at various points but he's just an ordinary guy called Brian he's not the messiah he is of course just a naughty, a naughty boy, boy. And, and I don't think that either of these films needs much more introduction than that and all I can say is if you haven't seen them what are you doing yeah. <laughs> yes a tremendously funny film uh, some comedians at the absolute top of their game really great set pieces for most of it as well more memorable music numbers uh, yeah, just just really funny stuff all the way throughout. I, I don't think it deserves much more... Well, it, it deserves to be talked about for a lot of time, but I don't think there's any value in doing so other than to tell you that it's incredibly funny. And if for some reason you haven't seen them already, then you certainly should do. Yeah, they're classics. I mean, I imagine most people know them. And you obviously, you're still going to get the occasional absolute muppet who's going to get offended about the life of Brian. Mm. I mean, really, if you have religious beliefs... 
do you really believe that somebody's going to get bothered by a silly film? That's something I've never understood, but not really the point here. It's just, yes, it's irreverent, but it's funny. And the number of things that have come out of that that just like come in pop culture too, like there's the Naughty Boy thing, which is the absolute pinnacle, I think. Mm -hmm. But then um, there's always look on the bright side of life that is sung while people are being crucified. I think if you, <laughs> people are so familiar with that song, don't actually think about which scene it came from. Yeah. <laughs> And then you've got the the Holy Grail with like she turned me into a newt and things like that. <laughs> yeah. and there are those who would call me Tim. <laughs> those sorts of films that like you could just become incredibly tiresome and sit and quote for hours quite easily. Yeah, um, don't do that. Something actually Monty <laughs> Python is very susceptible to because people would just like sit and quote the whole pirate sketch and things. Yeah, but they're just so entertaining and get people at the absolute top of their comedy game. Superb writing, great acting. And it's, they're absolutely classic. What more can you say? And mm -hmm. Imagine most people listening must at least know of them. I think it's probably the, of the films we're covering tonight, it's the ones we need to sell least, I suspect. Yeah, absolutely. And if somehow you've avoided hearing about Monty Python for all this time in your life, I'm not sure where you've been, uh, and if you have any interest in comedy, and if, if you have managed to avoid it for this long, perhaps you probably shouldn't see it, because I can imagine you probably might not like it. You must be entirely humorless. Have gone this far in your life without having heard of it. Or, you know, four. Yes, if you are four, you might actually not appreciate the nuances of it, to be <laughs> honest. Really, anyone with a, a vague interest in comedy really should watch the Monty Python stuff. As, as I say, perhaps to foreign audiences, uh, I feel the same way perhaps about you know Kids in the Hall, maybe, um, in that you need to have some kind of frame of cultural reference to kind of understand it. They've been such a big part of British culture for 30, 40 years that it is difficult to imagine them not being here and maybe if you're not so uh, enmeshed in British culture you may not think of it quite the same way but um, regardless there is nothing I think specifically British in what they do it's just um, the absurdity of life that they capture so well and turn into comedy and do yeah. an incredible job of doing so yes and it's the, yeah it's they are and even if you're not aware of it you have watched something that's been influenced by Monty Python Yes. Their, their influence is everywhere. I mean, not all the stuff they did was fantastic because it's a sketch show, but they are probably one of the few that is more hit than miss. Yeah. Um, like Kids in the Hall, it's for me, they were always the same. It's just, yeah, you, you can't think of a world that didn't have Monty Python in it because it's been so influential in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And even like, it's like slightly indirect in terms of at least giving rise to or giving opportunity to Terry Gilliam to go on and do his thing. Yeah. But just the the style of it and the the way they would like break the fourth wall a lot of the time and that sort of really play with stuff. Yeah, is <laughs> it's everywhere now, and I really think a lot of that wouldn't have happened without them. Yeah, things like playing with the format, like where they find they're in an office building, they're surrounded by film. Yeah, uh, because the, in those days the the film stock used outside was noticeably different from what would be used inside a studio. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's they do, there are a lot of really interesting things in their time and really huge innovators in the, the sphere of comedy. And yeah, absolutely great stuff. Absolutely. So I guess we move on a few years now uh, to Alpha Papa, the Alan Partridge movie that came out just a few years ago, actually. So Drew, perhaps that's uh, one you could tell us a little bit about. Alan Partridge, Steve Coogan's character, which began uh, in the mid nineties, I think. Yes, um, the um, who, who's become so popular in British culture that, that the description of being Alan Partridge is a particular type of way of <laughs> yes. that people can behave. 
has created its own terminology. The rather hapless, not malicious, but certainly politically incorrect and um, rather foolish DJ who then became a TV star and then ended up back on North Norfolk Digital being a DJ again, mm-hmm. having his star having set somewhat. So just having tasted the highs of TV life during the 1990s, Alpha Papa sees Alan Partridge working at a radio station back in his home of Norfolk and Edinburgh and Norwich and finds that the radio station he's working for has just been subjected to a corporate takeover and necessarily they're speaking about synergies <laughs> and all other words which mean we want to save some money so we're going to sack a bunch of people. Yeah. <laughs> Alan walks into a meeting, tries to explain basically why he shouldn't be sacked and just comes up with this great pan of just sack Pat, a reference to his supposed friend, Pat Farrell, played by Cole Meany, who, um, who, when he is fired, doesn't take it quite so well and brings a shotgun to the station, holds a bunch of people hostage and starts broadcasting while um, holding them hostage. It's a, a rather absurd setup, and I'm not quite sure how else to describe it, but it's really funny. <laughs> now, I had... Never much cared for Steve Coogan and only had seen bits and pieces of Alan Partridge during the 90s and never really got it. I'm not sure why, I don't know if I'd ever give it a fair shake or maybe something in me changed or maybe this is just substantially better. But I did watch Alpha Papa and I've now seen it three times and it's every bit as funny each time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I get the character now of this. It's like one step shy of I'm not racist, but Daily Mail persona. But without without any real malice, he's a bit of a kind of likeable buffoon. And just some of the writing in this film, as the the wordplay in it, and this is um, written by some real greats. Peter Bainham, who worked on the day-to-day and things, as well as other Alan Partridge shows, the legend that is Armando Iannucci, mm-hmm. Steve Coogan himself. It's so cleverly written, again, full of wordplay, so it's one of those films where, again, you need to pay a lot of attention, because there's just some su- real genuine subtlety, real genuine? Real genuine subtlety in the uh, in the dialogue that shows. And Alan Partridge is a this kind of almost lovable buffoon, yeah. um, and the support in this, Cole Media in particular, is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, um, yeah. It really stands up. Three times I've now seen it in the last four years, and it's every bit as funny each time. Definitely one of the funniest films in the modern era for me. It's definitely standing the test of time. But kind of like yourself, Alan Partridge, uh, I liked him well enough back in the, uh, well, particularly Chris Morrissey's excellent uh, day-to-day show, uh, yes. and, and he fulfilled that character well enough, but I, I kind of tuned out towards all the rest of him. He, he kind of went and spun off into his own little career with a few different TV shows that I kind of never really paid much attention or really liked all that much when I did come across them. So I he'd kind of fallen out of my consciousness completely until relatively recently that it was kind of picked back up again by Steve Coogan. And I guess the the distance of him now being a kind of fallen, somewhat slight, you know, slightly bitter and still small person holding onto some grudges from his days and from his heyday and always trying to kind of get back and becoming something of a, a more pathetic character, I think kind of really turned that corner for me and made him a really, really funny character. Plus, I think Steve Coogan is now funnier. Uh, the, the older he gets, the better he's got. He's just putting a tremendous performance here. It's an absolute incredible comic turn from Steve Coogan and Comini as well. Lots of really great moments, as you say, lots of great wordplay. If also, a great springboard to see, to reading two of the funniest books you'll read, the, the two Alan Partridge books that came out relatively recently, the 
<laughs> I Partridge. We need to talk about Alan, his biography, and uh, his recent uh, travels around this country with with, with his dad. Um, both really great books as well. Yeah, Alan Partridge is suddenly turned into one of my favourite comic characters, which I would not have seen if he came to me, uh, what was that, gosh, that's probably 15, 20 years ago now. Yeah, uh, terrific stuff. And uh, Alpha Papa is brilliant and definitely worth watching. Scott, we're asking, what is the worst monger? (laughs) Hybrid? Fish? Rumour? Or war? (laughs) I I almost think I've missed something. I I haven't had any particular desire to go back and visit the stuff that I didn't watch but Alpha Papa is just so, so funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so full of, of great lines. Like, you know, I, I don't know why. Uh, I'm only saying that just to give an example to some people if they're not familiar with Alpha Papa, just like the one I mentioned, Warmongers there. And when he's at a party and his assistant comes in and tells her, tells him that the woman he had a one night stand with is there and he goes, get rid of her, Lynn. She's a drunk and a racist. I'll tolerate one, but not both. <laughs> I was trying to give people a flavour of it. It's, it cracks me up so much. Although I do blame him for Brexit. I, I despise that phrase. I absolutely despise it. And I I genuinely think, although it was, maybe there was some trend in the media already, but mm. um, after his Grexitus um, speech in <laughs> Alpha Papa, I think that's where it came from. But if you can set that aside, because I'm really nice. But he is a kind of ludicrous character, Alan. But yeah. because there isn't really any malice in the character that it makes him there's feel some sort of warmth towards him at least some sort of sympathy mm. he's kind of his own worst enemy and it's it's such a funny film it really is yeah a lot of the humor is coming from him genuinely not knowing that what he's doing is at worst weird inappropriate. And yeah often bordering on a criminal <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah terribly funny stuff we'll round things off today i think with a look at Ali G in the House, the 2002 comedy film starring Sasha Baron Cohen. Now, this is something of an oddity, I think, in as much as one of the few instances where I can say that I really enjoyed the film a hell of a lot more than I ever enjoyed anything that came out on the television. Yes, I was that was him. Yeah, I, I mean, Ali G was mostly on the Eleven O'clock Show, wasn't it? Um, he did get his which own was show. A, yeah, but yes. But yeah, it started on the Eleven O'clock Show, I think, um, mm. which was a terrible thing at the time. Yeah. Ian Lee was always really unlikable and I never liked Ali G. Yeah. And then I watched this film for reasons I can't understand now, but I'm glad I did. Yeah. The thing about Ali G as a character is that he was initially seemingly conceived more or less as a way to take the mickey from people who didn't quite get the character. Um, Ali, oh, yeah. G, Ali G is a character, for anyone outside of Britain who may not have heard of him, is... Essentially, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen himself and uh, a few of his, you know, very urban white mates, <laughs> kind of aping a lot of the stylistics and language and culture that would be more associated with West Coast gangsters. And there's an inherent, an inherent comedy in that sort of contrast between people who have lived, a, you know, a, a life on on the mean streets of, I don't know, Compton or South Central LA, and comparing it to Staines, which is. <laughs> You know, the, the orders of magnitude different in both culture and danger. So the, he was kind of playing up a white gangster rap wannabe character as a means to interview various celebrities and politicians and essentially take the mickey from them. And um, that has its place. That is a, a, a noble satire tradition that's been going on for a long time. But when you've grown up seeing it being done by Chris Morris, seeing anyone else do it, is um, you know a pale imitation of that, 
Um, but nonetheless, Ali G... Yeah, once you've seen Brass Eye, yeah, um, the, 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 you can't be beaten. Can't really beat that. Chris Morris is tremendous stuff. That said, Ali G did pick up enough uh, of a, a popularity to get a, a movie adaptation. And it's kind of spun off into its own little thing. And I think it's much stronger for it. Um, it it's largely based around him trying to save along with his Stains Massive, including a... <laughs> West Stains Massive. That's true, the West Stains Massive. Um, along... I'll be specific with this because there is an East Stains <laughs> yes. something or other. Anyway, I'm not sure they're the massive. But... <laughs> so he's trying to save his beloved community centre after it's threatened by closure from government cuts and he decides after a, a series of events it transpires that uh, the Deputy Prime Minister Charles Dance decided to allow him to run for, cons- for government in his uh, non-specific party. Uh, um, uh, mainly as a way but to try... But clearly the Conservative Party. Yes. Uh, <laughs> clearly the Tories. Yeah. Uh, mainly as a way to try and uh, improve his position by bringing down the current uh, Prime Minister, Michael Gambon. He thinks that this will become such a ludicrous farce that uh, he will... It will be seen as a colossal mistake. He will be able to take the reins of power. Uh, yet somehow, something across a... a, a an innuendo, which turns out to be actually factual, he, he winds up winning his race for, <laughs> yes. for his constituency, becoming a member of parliament and becoming one of the prime minister's closest advisors, uh, leading to a number of strange and unusually funny situations. It's one of the more puerile um, movies on this list. Yes. It's, uh, even, it's undeniably juvenile. Yeah, I mean, this is... Uh, this is unabashedly so, actually. This is uh, no qualms making the odd penis joke. Um, but is is the odd the the odd hundred? Yeah, most of them. <laughs> and if you if you were going to talk about um, Sasha Baron Cohen's work, I think for most people the obvious choice is Borat, which was a, a larger thing, was a more successful film, um, which is also an incredibly funny film. But I think Ali G does uh, does warrant going back into the catalogue and, and digging out and watching. I think there's a lot of uh, really good comedy moments, and some really good comedy turns, and of course it's one of these films that has an unexpectedly great cast. For something that is so daft, um, you shouldn't really be getting Charles Dance, Michael Gambon, and Martin Freeman and stuff like this. But you do, and it's all the better for it. So, yes. yeah. I, I was hugely surprised watching this uh, the other day. I wasn't really expecting this to, to like this an awful lot. Um, I, I, I would have thought this would have aged incredibly badly, but it actually hasn't. Um, it's still no, just it's... about as relevant today as it was then, probably more so. There's certainly more cuts going on from the government. And yes, it's, it just works very well. It has a very limited scope. It's not shooting for anything grand or grandiose, yet it manages to be really quite funny. So yes, I would certainly give uh, this a look in. I went back to this with a little trepidation. I remember finding it reasonably entertaining hmm. the first time around. But yeah, I went back with trepidation thinking I'm not going to enjoy this and was genuinely but pleasantly surprised to find that actually it's still really funny. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yes, it, it is pure out there. It's full of willy jokes and jokes about penises and jokes about... <laughs> Are those distinct from willy jokes? <laughs> <laughs> jokes about testicles <laughs> and jokes about dicks. You know, <laughs> Basically, it's largely... Um, uh, the occasional um, fecal joke, but largely it's about Willie's. Um, and but marijuana. It's, just <laughs> it's yes, it's puerile, but it is funny. Perhaps because it's so ridiculous. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. And like the few moments where it breaks the fourth wall and has Ali G almost doing a a commentary on the film in the film. Yeah, and it's really funny. <laughs> the cast helps, I think. I am no fan of Michael Gambon, but he's okay in this. But it's Charles Dance. Yeah. Who seems to seem to be game for stuff like this because I think how much worse the criminally underrated last action hero would have been without Charles Dance. Oh, yeah, yeah. He makes that. So film. he does. Yeah. 
he does seem to be up for for stuff like this and he's because he does play it so seriously yeah uh, which really helps but you do get the feeling that Charles Dance knows what's going on it's not like he's just been filled into <laughs> some film or something well, I mean, you know? he's even playing it incredibly seriously at that last shot which uh, you require the mind bleach for oh yes the, the one with him in the the special clothing yes <laughs> yes yeah, I mean, fair play to Charles Dance for agreeing to do that, right? <laughs> yes, I hadn't forgotten about it without the mind bleach, but thanks for bringing that back to mind, Scott. <laughs> yeah, I think Borat's more well-known, and it's probably a funnier film, yeah. although it's more difficult to watch, I find, Borat, because, and I did actually did watch that just a few weeks ago, I think. Mm-hmm. So there were three films that were based on Ali G television characters. There was Borat, Glorious Nations, uh, Glorious Lions of America for Make Benefit, Great Nation of Kazakhstan, <laughs> give it its full name. There was Ali G in the house and there was Bruno and Borat, comfortably the funniest of those. Borat is a really difficult thing to watch though. Yeah. Because it does have that horrible cringe factor to it. Yeah. Because for a large part of it is real people and it's so, so awkward. Yeah. I mean, again, that's what makes it funny, but it, it does make it a very uncomfortable watch, whereas Ali G is a bit more straightforward. Yeah, I think all the cringe stuff with Ali G was the stuff that was going into his TV show, uh, whereas this is sort of taking the character and, you know, making the joke be on him rather than the guest, which I think uh, makes it a lot easier to like in a number of respects. Yeah, I don't know really what I want to say about this, because the the thing about this program is we've picked a whole lot of comedies that we think are funny, so it's hard to not just say it's funny, watch it. (laughs) Uh, well, it's funny, but it, it's really the only important thing in a comedy. So yes, yes. <laughs> so us having said our our piece on comedy, we've got a couple of replies on Twitter. We asked some of your thoughts at the last minute about. Yes, thanks very much. Rapid response to Twitter squad. Uh, you really, really, really excelled yourself here because it's only been what I think we put that tweet out at the same time as we started recording this. So yes, well yes, done. And we have we have responses. <laughs> so thank you very much, our reliable crew out there on Twitter. Yes. So. Let's begin with, which just ask in general about your thoughts on TV comedy adaptations and all of you. I say all of you, it's two of you, but you, you've produced quite a lot of responses for just two of you. Um, I've given some responses. Regular viewer, Bunty Hoven, also known as Tengushi, at Tengushi on Twitter, um, mentions first of all, and I suspect he has a bit of a a bit of an issue with this film. Strong opinions. Strong opinions, yes. Strong opinions, yes. Bewitched was worse than a war crime. <laughs> Yes. Seems harsh. Seems harsh. Yes, I didn't like I, I, all that much, but seems harsh. Yes, I can barely remember that film, to be honest. I just know it had sod all to do with the fairly innocuous but recently entertaining 1960s television sitcom. Yeah. The second one, it's sort of, it's half an adaptation of the TV series and half kind of arched and knowing because it's like, it's a TV programme inside a TV programme. It's based on a TV programme and it's, oh, and it's really, it just, it is crap. TV uh, programs all the way down, isn't it? <laughs> Worse than the war crime. That that's a, a strong state to make. But I'm guessing you had a particularly bad reaction to that film. So I'm not going to argue with you about it. Yes. We mentioned Will Ferrell earlier on in the podcast. Yes, this is definitely not Will Ferrell's finest moment, and it was um, a bad film with Nicole Kidman. And there are quite a few of those to choose from, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And this is probably round. Bewitched was not far off of the time that she was in. Stepford Wives as well. I think the time frame is really similar to that, so it's shown a bunch of terrible films at the time. Yeah. He also mentions that the Brady Bunch was okay, took an ironic take mostly, had a few laughs. I want to say I've seen this. 
starring Shelley Long, Gary Cole and Michael McKean. And if you put Gary Cole and Michael McKean together, then you know good things are bound to happen. But um, I can't actually remember any details of it, so I'll have to pass on that one. But um, no, I, I've certainly never seen it, and I'm only vaguely aware of the '70s television show it was based on. So mm-hmm. no, so no for me. And also, the Dragnet film was fun. Uh, yes, yes, it was. Uh, Another Dan Aykroyd one, isn't it? Dan Aykroyd um, and Tom Hanks. Uh, yeah, well, I've never actually last. seen that, and I know really? sawed all about the TV series. So Dragnet's oh, once right. passed me by. Yeah, I, I don't think you need to know anything about the TV series other than it was a, a, a serious cop drama, which um, Dan Aykroyd still plays. He's he's kind of the serious character in the film. Tom Hanks is the kind of loving goofball in it. And yes, watch it. Dragnet's pretty good. Okay, I, I shall do that then. Okay, so um, Bunty Hoven too, our other regular contributor. Matt Toller. You know, if people haven't seen uh, Harry Hill from, what, 20 years ago, they're going to be very confused by these references. So Yes, I know, and I think that every time I say that about Bundy Hoffman, <laughs> because it's not the first time I've mentioned this podcast, but to be honest, I don't care, yeah. because Bundy Hoffman amuses me, and that's all I'm interested in. <laughs> Matt Toller, low-quality tweets, at M. Toller on Twitter, um, also mentions Benny Bunch, but so I'm a big fan of the Adams Family movies. It's been a long while, but I remember finding the Brady Bunch movie better than expected. Damn it with fate and phrase, I guess, Matt. But I'm not sure if I've ever seen the Adams Family films. I'm aware of them. I know Raul Julia was in them and um, Angelica Houston. Yeah. And then Christina Ricci, but I'm not convinced I ever saw them. I never saw many of the TV series. I always preferred The Monsters. Oh, to me, yes, those like, the they seemed like those were yeah. more or less the same thing. The Monsters <laughs> and the Adams Family, and you picked your team, and I was a Monsters <laughs> supporter, but... Yeah, I'm, I'm Team Monster too. But yeah, Adam's Family films are pretty good. I can't remember really anything about Adam's Family Values, which was the second one, but look, look, Raul Julia's in it. <laughs> Come on, what more do you want from a film? Raul Julia's also another one of these people who's got some really great comic timing who you may not think of it for, um, as we discussed, well, as, as me and Craig discussed on the uh, Street Fighter <laughs> podcast, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, uh, I think anything where Raul Julia's in a comedy role is worth seeing, and uh, Adam's Family certainly is. Yeah, I was slightly concerned by Matt's next tweet because of our experience last week, Scott. Uh, Matt says, I laughed straight through the Mystery Science Theatre 3000 movie. That's a rare feat. The kids in the whole movie had its moments but didn't fare as well. Mm. You're wrong, Matt. I'm sorry. We like you a lot, but you're wrong. But um, I am slightly concerned by that because I have never seen the original Mystery Science Theatre 3000. However, Scott and I last week did decide that we would try to watch an episode of the new Mystery Science Theatre 3000, the one with Patton Oswalt in it. Yes, that one what popped up on Netflix a few months ago. And um, Yes, yeah. and it's possibly the worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and that's not hyperbole. Yeah, now uh, I suppose the caveats are required because I did a bit of reading afterwards and uh, I don't think it's written or stars any of the same people in it. So it may be one of these things that is Mystery Science Theatre 3000 in, in name only. Um, mm-hmm. I, and uh, maybe we'll need to try and dig out some of the original stuff because you hear the name so often as being associated with something that was really funny but it somehow never really appeared in Britain as best I can tell And No, I'm only vaguely aware of the name from people talking about it on Twitter it's on all of I really knew about it I still hold out hope that some of that original stuff is actually funny but yeah, the, the stuff that we <laughs> came across on Netflix was tremendously not funny in every regard I mean, uh, like genuinely painful Yeah I really am not exaggerating. It's one of the worst things I have ever seen. It it was so phenomenally try-hard. Yeah. And achingly unfunny. It, it, the only positive I took from it was that it did make us feel a bit better about our commentaries from the first year of our podcast. <laughs> I think, I think in retrospect, it turns out that's quite hard to make a commentary funny. So, yes, 
happy to not bother with any more Mystery Science Theater <laughs> 3000, actually. Matt also goes on to say, that's uh, at mtoller on the Twitters, don't think I remember a thing that happened in the Simpsons movie. I like South Park, but I haven't much had the urge to revisit their effort. Now, I specifically didn't do uh, animated sequences because I think that's a topic ripe for a podcast by itself. Adaptations of animations that either came as live action or as feature-length animations. So Parker views on that perhaps, but the Simpsons movie, we well, as we, as we go on to say, things like Spider-Pig, Ralph singing the Forks search like, Orchestra intro, as uh, Tengashi points out. Yes, th- there are things that are memorable in the Simpsons movie. It's by no means the best Simpsons thing it's, that there's ever been, how, but it's pretty bloody funny. I'm really surprised that Matt was struggling to remember anything about the Simpsons movie um, South Park 2. I have, in fact, revisited both of those within within this year, mm-hmm. and they're both still really, really funny. Yeah. And they are both absolutely just feature-length episodes of the TV sure, series. Sure. But I have no problem with that whatsoever. <laughs> because South Park, when it's funny, is really, really funny. The Simpsons, when it's funny, is really, really funny. Those are both really, really funny. <laughs> yeah, there is absolutely sod-all filmic about them, really. They are sure. just extended episodes. I mean, maybe they've got slightly better production value, but not. Not to a great degree. No, especially uh, South Park, which has always made a point of principle not you know, having It's meant to be value. terrible looking, isn't yeah. it? Um, but they are, they are really, really funny. Um, and they're just feature-length episodes, and that's fine by me. I don't need anything more. Yeah. Yes, um, heartily enjoyed both those, and hopefully we will get to talk about those sometime soon. Right, that would seem to be it. Thanks for those who responded on such short notice at Twitter. If you would like to get in touch with us for any reason you can do so in a number of ways you could do so on the Twitters that seems to be the main one um, we're at Fuds on Film on the Twitters you can get us on Facebook facebook.com slash Fuds on Film or through email that's podcast at Fuds on I think that's all there is for us to say just now so thank you ever so much for your attention um, we hope we've given you some recommendations that we've given you what what's that like nine or ten of our favourite films so, yeah, so you should really go and see those if you're not already. So there's your that's, homework. That's an order, not a suggestion. Yes, that's, that's your homework. So do that and write an essay about why they're funny or why we're um, wrong. We'd love to hear it. Actually, and if you do, as a result of us talking about them, watch any of those, please do please drop us a quick um, note on Twitter just to let us know what you thought of them. We genuinely appreciate hearing what people think of things. Absolutely, yes. And there's probably nothing, nothing that makes me happier than having recommended a film to someone who then goes on to like it and then share it with you. So that's, yes. a, that's a nice little, nice little thing. Makes all this worthwhile, really. It does. Beyond obviously liking hearing the sound of our own voices, apparently that's and why I you do a podcast. Do. But. Yes. So uh, we will catch you next time. Um, but until we meet again, I've been Scott Morris and I wish you a farewell. And I'm sure Drew Tavendale does too. Yeah, okay then. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs> I found farewell from me also. <laughs> <laughs>